HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Feast Your Ears. Today in the studio with me, I have Alicia Santo, staff writer at The Marshall Project. Thanks, Alicia, for making time on this rainy Wednesday to join me. Thanks for having me. Um, can you introduce yourself to the listeners and talk a little bit about The Marshall Project and what you do? Sure, yeah. So The Marshall Project is a, a nonprofit journalism outlet focused exclusively on the criminal justice system. So we do longer form investigative pieces, we do shorter, newsier pieces, and we try to raise the subject of criminal justice um, in a way that will make it a subject of urgency in the national conversation, um, which is something that is happening currently. So, Thank you. Yeah, if, if you haven't figured out, we're going to talk about prison today uh, on the show. And one of the things that we were talking about uh, before before the show started was the fact that prison seems to be coming up in the national media, seems to be articles happening more often, and the Marshall Project is now about a year old, and it's, it's becoming part of the national conversation, um, which I think is really important. We read about there being more people in prison. It's costing people more. Um, you know, now that it's election season uh, for the presidential election, I think that we will be hearing a lot more about, you know, taxes and tax spending and all of these things. And, and one of the things that, you know, we spend a lot of money on in this country is prisons. Yeah. And I, one of the reasons, too, that it's becoming something being discussed more and more is besides the human rights costs of our huge prison system, there's 
beginning to be some agreement on both sides that it's a problem. And so it's actually, you know, for lawmakers, something to focus on because something might actually be able to be done about it. Um, I think that would be I think that would be really positive. Um, so you you wrote a story um, earlier this year uh, that came out of in June, correct? Yes. Uh, that was about prison meals. And I wanted to, to talk a little bit about what you what you discovered there. Um, and you recreated some of the meals from some of sort of the, the worst offenders. Can you talk about what you discovered and talk about that story? Sure. So um, being that food is such a centerpiece in all of our lives, uh, even in prison, even more so. Um, so I was curious to just kind of look into what do these meals actually look like? What are they? And it was prompted by a story I had read um, about some uh, people that were in jail in, in Georgia that were saying, you know, that basically they they were eating toothpaste and licking syrup packets so because they were so hungry and being fed such little amounts of food. So um, just kind of researching and finding menus that already existed in terms of just that maybe a newspaper had done a story about prison food and ran a menu or like Sheriff Joe Arpaio in uh, Maricopa County, uh, Arizona had tweeted proudly his menu for Thanksgiving because he's very proud of the low, low cost that he's achieved in feeding um, the inmates there. And so um, I just gathered as many as I could find that were just already publicly available and then made them in my apartment. And our photographer, Lisa Iabini, photographed them. And we wrote about sort of they were all con- um, surrounded by controversy because that's why they had come up is that um, inmates had written either to reporters or, or attorneys to say, you know, we're, we're starving and um, we're not getting enough food. And and menus are a matter of public record. So um, these reporters and attorneys had, had gathered some of these um, menus. And the, and the ones that you profiled were sort of some of the worst of the worst. Right? That's the, right. The ones that, I mean, in, in some cases, inmates were getting, you know, less than 2000 calories a day. Um, and you know that's really not not much. Yeah. Um, and and in some places, there's no there's no requirement. Um, I believe I read in your piece that uh, in in some places like Texas, I think they're required to give three meals in a, in a 24 hour period. Um, but in some places, they're not. So yeah. some of these prisons are only serving two meager meals a day. Yeah, it's a really um, prison food and jail food is very much um, a confluence of local policy, state policy, and court. Uh, determinations. Um, the rule in Texas about three meals a day for that only applies to jail inmates, people in the state prisons. There had been talk of reducing it to two meals a day to save money. So the the law is very much there's not a lot of um, you know consistency in those, um, and that's probably why it comes up as a problem so often too. Is that there's not a whole lot of regulation around it. I mean, for a jail or prison to get the accreditation of the uh, American Correctional Association, they do have to have the food reviewed uh, for dietary standards, but um, otherwise there isn't a whole lot of oversight. And you, I mean, you mentioned the fact that in uh, in Alabama that sheriffs can keep any extra money that they don't spend on on uh, meals for inmates, and that there was a sheriff there who'd pocketed about two hundred thousand uh, dollars, which means that you know he was basically starving people to fill his own pockets. Yeah, and that law has uh, there have been efforts to repeal that law. I'm not entirely sure if it in recent months has been repealed, but I know that those efforts haven't gone anywhere. It's a very old law; it's from 1939. Um, that, along with giving sheriffs the ability to pocket money that they save, it, it, it determined how much could be spent. It was a budgetary 
sanitary measure, like so many of the decisions around food in for people who are incarcerated, it's uh, money is at the center of the decisions. Well, and, and I think that we're in a position where we get a little bit stuck because certainly I think that even people who are fighting for you know prison justice would agree there are people who shouldn't necessarily be out on the street. However, Absolutely. we're putting far too many people in who probably could be on the street and could be rehabilitated and could be, you know, valuable members of society. And then we're putting them into a place where we're, you know, we're not even treating them like humans, right? We're giving them very little food, you know, in many cases, terrible conditions. And I understand that this is obviously not true of every prison and that there are places where things are better and people, I'm sure, get better food. Um, but I think it's really valuable work that you guys are doing at the Marshall Project to sort of bring this bring this stuff up and bring it into the national conversation. I mean, one thing about, um, you know, <clears throat> what you serve people to eat is like there I haven't read any studies that show a connection between behavior and food quality. But I wouldn't be surprised if the thing about people who are incarcerated is, it, you know, what these these tiny things, these mean a lot. Well, food isn't a tiny thing, but these things add up um, and it, it creates an atmosphere that's even more difficult for staff to deal with uh, the cost down the line in terms of health care when you're feeding people basically like starch uh, and no vegetables or fruit. And then that ends up costing money later. I mean, the whole the whole system is so much set up around um, meeting a budget um, often. And the fact is, too, I think that uh, gets a little lost, especially in the recent conversation about criminal justice reform, is that you hear a lot about how the prisons are filled up with nonviolent drug offenders. That's actually not true. Uh, a lot of people that are especially in state prison are violent offenders. And so to even think about how we're reducing the prison population how that can actually be done. I think we, as a as a culture, have to think about how we think about punishment and what's appropriate and how long sentences should be and um, not even get caught up so much. Of course, it is an issue that there's a lot of nonviolent people sitting in prison, but the truth is a lot of people did commit something that was violent, and we just have to think more about uh, how we deal with that. Sure, and, and I mean, I do think that there there are some... There is some documentation out there, but it would be definitely interesting to see what, what else may, be, may come out of this. But people are affected by the food that they eat, for sure. I mean, I, you know, I, not that you know, th these things are directly related, but my daughter, who's six years old, um, if she doesn't have protein at breakfast, she gets you know, hangry in the middle <laughs> of the morning and lashes out at other kids. And we had a problem last year when she was in kindergarten that she was lashing out at other kids and we talked to the teacher and talked to a lot of people and couldn't figure it out. She's, you know, aside from that, seemingly a very well-adjusted little girl. And what we realized is that we had switched to just letting her have cereal for breakfast, hmm, which wow. was just sugar and starch mm -hmm. and no protein. And the problem was that her body was processing that stuff so fast that by 10 o'clock in the morning, she was hungry. Right. And she so was lashing out at other kids because she didn't know how to deal with that. And it was sort of throwing her off. And I started to think about it in terms of myself. If I skip breakfast or skip lunch and I'm working hard and I'm running around, you know, you get you get angry and you get more on edge. And then you take that and then expand that into a prison population where you have, you know, all these other factors that are pressuring people together. And, you know, I could certainly imagine that that's actually a huge effect on it. And most of the meals that you profile in your piece had little to no protein. Right. And really had, you know, like you said, starches, sugars, things that the body's going to process really fast. And, 
you know, I would imagine that hunger may, may contribute to violence in prisons. Yeah. And I mean, that's also been the subject of other changes to save money in terms of replacing meat with um, soy products. That's been a popular change to incorporate because it's um, a lot cheaper. But also there are sort of, I don't know the exact statistics or, uh, but there's a lot of information out there about too much soy. And so I just know that that's been also a movement that's happened uh, in jails and prisons. In the prisons that you were investigating, um, were the meals being cooked and created by the prison themselves, or were they coming from outside food companies that were hired in as contractors? The ones that that I had um, create recreated were mostly like actually made within house. Um, the privatization piece is a huge one, though. Um, for example, if you just look at Michigan, in 2013, they hired Aramark, the largest prison food provider in the country, to make all their meals, um, firing a bunch of state employees and, and just completely privatizing the process. And over the past couple of years, there's been reports about maggots in the food, uh, staff bringing in contraband, food shortages, um, a lot of things. Uh, and then this July, they, uh, the Michigan Department of Corrections switched to Trinity, uh, a different food service provider, um, to administer their food for them. But you can't, you know, so it shows that both when government administers the menu and when private corporations administer the menu, you, you still see some of the same exact problems um, because it's about saving money or earning money, profit. Um, and so it's not I, it's not um, relegated just to the private companies, just like abuse in prison isn't relegated to private prisons. Um, it's it happens in all the different types of ways that these facilities are administered. Um, well, we're going to take a short break and hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, prison and food. And we'll hear from someone who actually has spent time inside a prison. So that's coming up on the second half. This is Dave Arnold from Cooking Issues, and I'm here to talk to you about the Museum of Food and Drink, which is finally getting a brick-and-mortar space right here in Brooklyn, New York. So the Museum of Food and Drink is opening the MOFAD Lab, our first laboratory and gallery space, where we will be putting on an exhibition called Making It or Faking It, the history of the flavor industry. It tackles a very important uh, topic, which is how the food system got to be the way it is now uh, as a result of the intervention of the flavor industry, how that happened. Get your tickets at tickets.mofad.org to come see the first exhibit ever of the Museum of Food and Drink at the MOFAD Lab, brought to you by Infinity on 62 Bayard Street. The following program was brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. 
Edward's Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edward's name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears for the second half. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and with me today, uh, I have Alicia Santos, staff writer at The Marshall Project, and just joining us for the second half of the show today is Guillermo Rodriguez uh, from the Carnegie Hill Institute. Thank you, Guillermo, for making it into the studio. Thank you. Thank you. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, you can move the mic just okay. a little, little closer, or sit closer. Um, so we were talking before the break about uh, about food in prison and about an article that Alicia wrote, and I'm really pleased to have Guillermo here. Um, he has a very uh, specific experiences uh, with those things. He was in prison um, and can really speak speak to some of those details. Uh, Guillermo, can you introduce yourself a little bit and talk about the Carnegie Hill Institute and what you do now? Well, my name is Guillermo Rodriguez, and I'm now a clinical counselor over at the Carnegie Hill Institute, and uh, I primarily deal with substance abusers and uh, helping them get their life back on track. And uh, I spent a significant amount of time in prison, you know, and when you were in prison, uh, you were a cook, correct? Yes, there were, there were times that I was a cook, but also, I, you know, as a prisoner, I was also a person who was eating the food. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, when you were in prison, um, did you, we were speaking uh, earlier in the first half of the show about some prisons and some places where they're not required to give three meals a day. Did you have three meals a day generally when you were in prison, two no, meals a day? Generally, you're entitled to three meals a day. Entitled is the key word. Mm. Will you receive three meals? Three meals a day is a different question, and it's it, it speaks to the fact that you need the nutritional content that you're entitled to as a prisoner. You know, under the New York State Constitution, right? That you're entitled to certain nutritional benefits, New York State Health Law, and all that. Uh, and in order for you to reach those nutritional goals, you have to eat all three meals. You have to eat all three meals, and you have to eat all the food that's on your plate. However, if for some reason you're not allowed to go eat your meal because you misbehaved, because you didn't listen to direction, now your nutritional content is lowered. So, sure. you know... Uh, and we were speaking before about, you know, I, I, we were talking about how that also then relates into um, how people deal with one another. You right. know, when, when you're hungry and you're angry... Right. and you're not getting the food that you need, then that just adds to some of the difficulties. But, you know, I mean, the food was prepared in difficult circumstances. There were some prisons that were better than others. You know, uh, Eastern at one point had, uh, you know, it was it was supposed to be an honor prison. You know, you went there when you were be well-behaved for a significant amount of time. In some cases, they wanted to give you an opportunity for a fresh start. So Eastern Correctional Facility, they had their own bakery. So they would make fresh baked products. They would have uh, the inmates go in and, and make pizza pies, you know, and, and make uh, cakes and stuff for the other inmates and save money that way. Hmm. Would those, would the inmates who were doing the baking and the cooking, like yourself, yes. were those skills that were identified that those inmates had before 
they entered the facility or was it no, was it a train? You have supervision. You have constant supervision. And that's one thing that can be said about the uh, people who work within the correctional setting. Uh, the employees, the, the direct line staff who work closely with the uh, inmates. You know, they, they, they make sure that the food is prepared properly. You know, I mean, sometimes the food is mushy. Other times it's raw. You know, you want to you wanna try to, you know, but for the most part, the meal is prepared, you know, without the thought of danger. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, my God. Rikers Island. Rikers Island in the 80s. I mean, you would find mice tails in your food and they would expect you to eat it. You couldn't take it back up and, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, even to this day. They still have questions regarding the the, the uh, 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 nutritional content of the food on Rikers Island. I'm you sure know? that's true, and, and and with the what we were talking about about trying to keep costs down, you know, there's obviously we, you were saying about soy coming in and replacing fillers, uh, uh, specifically fillers. Fillers are used for everything, you know. So you have uh, even when we go to the grocery store, but in particularly in prison, they put more rice into it. They'll put bread into it. They'll, they'll grind the bread up and use it as filler. They'll put rice into it and use that as filler. Uh, sure. I mean, it happens on the outside. Soy. Right? I mean, you have chickens that are soaked in salt water to add water content so you can charge more by weight. And, I, you know, and then, of course, that's... I mean, when I used to inside. cook, when I used to cook like a, like a, a beef goulash, which was ground beef, you know, initially it was ground beef. Then it went from ground beef to ground beef, 50% beef, uh, and 25% turkey, and... 25% filler, rice or whatever. And then you would mix that in and, and put in some noodles, put in some tomato sauce. You would be supervised. You have somebody who's a nutritionist or, or, or a cook who's, who's from a civilian who would be supervising the production of the meals for the day. You know, so, you know, it wasn't necessary. I wouldn't say necessarily the production. We've had some issues in prison regarding uh, things that were tossed in the food and stuff like that. But in any incident that I've ever witnessed, specifically, uh, it was always, yo, no, no, we ain't serving that. Dump it. Put this on the line. If they argue, they argue, you know. But it, it all came down to whether the inmates were allowed to be able to get to the dining hall to eat their meals. And then the meals had to be nutritional because, again, like I said, Eastern serve French toast, they serve pancakes, they serve eggs off the grill. All of these things were fresh made at Eastern Correctional Facility. Now you go to Attica, you come in, you got five minutes to eat, you forget about it. You got to wait in line, you got to go through a line, and then you got to shove the food down. That's not healthy. Sure. You know, and you when you do it to close to three decades... You know, close to three decades, it's got to be doing something to your body. Sure, absolutely. As, as she explained with the soy, yep. you know, also the uh, the sodium, yep. because now they have what's called quick chill. Quick chill process. It began in, I think, uh, they did a pilot with it in uh, Attica Correctional. Right? Oh. No, they did a, a pilot with it in New York State in Attica Correctional Facility in 1988-1989. They started it with the eggs. And then it went from that pilot program, they, they de- developed a quick chill facility, right? And then after they opened up that one quick chill facility, it was servicing one particular facility specifically. What they did was they took the food and froze it, froze it and shipped it. And then when they get it at the other place, they heat it. I believe they're now serving, probably Eastern would be one of the facilities where you would see Eastern, Sullivan, Shawangunk, which are considered more of the honor prisons in the, in the state of New York. 
But when you get to prisons like Comstock, Attica, Auburn, you know, in those places where, you know, it's not about trying to have nutritional content. It's about security, security, security. Right. You know, and they don't, if, if, the, if the inmate is not allowed to participate in the meals, he's not receiving the proper nutritional content that he's entitled to as an inmate within the Department of Correctional Services. Are there places that you're aware of where the inmates don't do any of the preparation of the meals? Because I would imagine that that would affect as well. You talk about when you were cooking. No, actually, no. I've I've even seen the uh, inmates work in dining halls that serve the officers, hmm. you know, like the OM, the officers' mess hall, where they go and they buy, pay for their food, and the inmates in there, in there preparing their foods. Those are things from the old days, the eighties, up and well up into the nineties. I don't think there's any more officers' mess halls in the state of New York anymore. But in the eighties, they did have officers' mess halls, and no, the the inmates prepare the food. Okay. Yeah, I mean, my, my, my question was was thinking about at least then you do have people preparing the food who are part of the population. So, you know, you are you are able to, you know, you are able to, to look out for one another to a certain extent yeah, if something bad happens and say, there's, some, there's a lot of things that go on, the unseen eye, okay, which we talk about. I don't know, uh, we were talking about the food. The quality of food sometimes is not bad, depending on where you go. Uh in other places, the quality of food is very poor. Um, was there any access to food outside of the mess hall and outside of those meal yes, times? They have a directive which is called 4911, and it allows you to receive certain foods from home monthly, canned foods, uh, foods that are impervious to outside influence, such as cookies, potato chips that come in the bag. So you're allowed 35 pounds of that once a month. In two packages, if you might want to split it up or whatever. As long as someone's willing to send right, it in. Right, there's into a you. directive that's called 4911 that regulates what can be allowed in. Hmm. And uh, it's a New York State directive. And uh, let me see. I was going to tell you about people that are in special housing units. Special housing units, they're under 23-hour lockdown. They only come out for one hour recreation a day because of whatever security need there might be. Let's just say a blanket security need, right? Uh, these individuals oftentimes, don't, their meals are tampered with. It may be the guy who's delivering the meal to them. It may be your officer who has something against him. So we have to be mindful that, that you know, that uh, sometimes they don't reach their nutritional content in that way. Sometimes the, the meals are tampered with, and that affects a lot of people. Sure. And what you about know, food with, allergy? I mean, is there is there any accommodation at all for people with food allergies? Yes, there are accommodation within the New York State Department of Correctional Facilities. They have a nutritional uh, director, a commissioner of nutritional services. Uh, and they also have uh, food service administrators in each facility who administrate, you know, and make sure that if you have allergies, like uh, I've seen people have canned octopus, and that was the only thing they could eat, you know, uh, 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 tuna fish and stuff like that. You also have the uh, religious people who of have course. their specific food. Uh, the Jewish meals are prepared, you know. Uh, forget about it. They have for every religion there. They have make sure that they, their uh, dietary needs are met. However, that's, that's where the introduction of soy came in at because the Jamaicans and the Rastafarians were saying, listen, we don't eat meat. 
So why you don't have an alternative for us? So then they created the soy alternative, but not everybody likes the soy sure, alternative. Sure, and it turned out to be cheaper, so it made the bottom line look better to the pr- on, on the prison. Be careful you know. what you ask for. You yeah, just yeah. might get it. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Uh, in pop culture, I feel like you know we hear a lot about things like prison wine and things that people oh, are are, are making themselves. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> yes, I, I was involved in the uh, production of hooch or whatever you call it, and yeah, uh, yes, we did. We made it and we sold it. You know, and uh, oftentimes you got caught with it. They would put you in uh, special housing unit for a couple of months, and that's the problem with prison that people can do time. You know, and once they feel like they can do time, they just it's, it doesn't bother them. Right, right. So there's no there's no reason not to do those. And things. that's why that's why recidivism, you know, and so far and so forth. You know, what did you use for ingredients when you were making it? Sugar, oranges, rice for the uh, starch. Yep. You know, to eat up the sugar, or uh, we might use some bread, some bread ends. You know, but since I worked in the uh, bakery, I used to just go and get some yeast. Sure. Right away. You know, 48 hours, we're good. We throw it right on top of the uh, refrigerator and the heat from the the freezers. (laughs) You put it off at the top and cover it back up. (laughs) And the mayonnaise jugs, the big mayonnaise jugs. Sure, sure. And then uh, we would just distribute it, you know, and everybody would be drinking. But, uh, yeah, we made uh, prison hooch, grilled cheese. Anything that was made out of metal, we would scrape the paint off of it, clean it up real good with Ajax, wipe it down, throw some butter on it, heat it up with paper on the bottom, and it would be the whole gallery would smell like fire. <laughs> and you're making grilled cheese on a piece of metal that you carved the, the stuff off. But people would eat. That was how you did it sometimes. That's, that's how you survived, especially for a person who was in special housing unit who had to eat Nutri-Loaf, which is... Let me talk to you about Nutri-Loaf. Nutri-Loaf was invo- in, in, introduced in 1985. And the first Nutri-Loaf that was created was created in an Eastern Correctional Facility. Right? And uh, it was created because they wanted to give Nutri-Loaf to Willie Bostic who happened to be a teen who had they created their own little block for him and they wanted to make sure that he didn't eat nothing but neutral loaf because he was very violent mm-hmm. inmate. So they created the neutral loaf. After they created the neutral loaf, they started their neutral loaf. Oh, let me tell you what the ingredients were because I used to make the neutral loaf. You would have uh, wheat, flour, uh, of course, yeast. Uh, it would be sometimes they wouldn't use the yeast. They would use the, the a little bit of yeast, but not too much because you don't want to make it where it goes stale. They had the, uh, what was it, potatoes, carrots, uh, shredded up potatoes. Sometimes if you're in Attica, you get in chunks. <laughs> when you pull the bread apart, oh, man, a big carrot sticking out Right, but if you're in Eastern and places like that, they make it like into a puree, and then they make up a nice dough, and they hook it up, and it's actually tasty. I actually like the neutral loaf, but not in SHU, because that's the only thing you're getting your nutritional content from. Everything's in there. You get the carrot skins, the potato skins, you're eating the potato, the carrots, and then whatever else, the, the wheat from the uh, bread, and that's it. You get that, cabbage, and water for 30 days at a time. 30 days on, 30 days off. 
because that at some point they got to start letting you eat protein, you know, and, and you know, they, they don't want to do that. That's specifically for people who commit assaults that they can't do anything else to. Right. We've put you in SHU and you continue to assault people or attempt to assault in, in people. In the one hour a day that you you're... Know, right. Yeah. You know, so we have to do something to gain compliance out of you. And that was one of the things that they used to uh, gain compliance, which was the uh, neutral loaf with cabbage and water, which they gave at 30 days at a time, 30 days on, 30 days off. Anybody who's ever done time knows that. What did you miss most food-wise when you were in prison? Coffee. Bustelo coffee. If my family said, what do you want? Send me a case of Bustelo coffee, 10-ounce cans. And that was something. Was that something they could send in? Yeah, they could send it. You take a you take a handkerchief, you get a a, a, a large a butterfly paper clip, make it around, wrap it around, stick it inside the end of a pen, tie, sew the the handkerchief around and up, and make a funnel. Boiling water, put two spoons of coffee in there, and pour the water in there, and it comes right down coffee. So you were, you were doing pour-over coffee Yeah, we would do pour-over coffee in prison, you know, and uh, it was okay, you know. And in some instances, when you had opportunity to be in a position to have a coffee maker, you would make coffee in the office or whatever. Because, believe me, you have 16 Clinton Correctional Facility. Did Tommy Clinton, right? In the honor block, I worked in the tailor shops over there and everything, right? Uh, Clinton Correctional Facility... We'll let you cook outside. In addition to cooking outside, they would uh, sell items out of a hobby shop. They would sell stuff from the store to you, you know, even though you uh, had limited amount that you could spend, $55 you could spend a month. Uh, let me see. Was there ever any any farming or anything like that in any yes, of the prisons yes, that you were in? Yes, 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 there was farming. Uh, initially, in the 80s, every prison was attached to a farm. Well, sure, I, I know the Queens County Farm Museum um, is near Creedmoor right, uh, psychiatric right. facility, and up right. until, I believe, the 80s, before it became right. the farm museum it is now, right. it actually was the farm that supplied all the food to Creedmoor, and the folks in Creedmoor would work the farm. Exactly, and that was the way it was. You had uh, farms all over the place. Every prison had a farm attached because they were self-sufficient. They slaughtered their own meat. They produced their own milk. They're, actually, right now, they produce their own butter. You know, so they produced their own butter. They started doing that. They started doing that in the 90s, producing their own butter. Uh, and they, they just created a whole nother culture. Because it's a, it's a society within a society. Right. Right. Well, I mean, I, I hope, and, I, you know, Alicia, maybe there's, a, there's an opportunity for this, but, you know, I would hope that as things on the outside have gotten, people have gotten interested in where food is coming from and interested in farms, and, and in fact, you know, local food can be more economical than food coming from afar, perhaps there's an opportunity for some of those sorts of reforms to trickle right. up, down, sideways, whichever way you want to look at it, into the prison system. Because if you have these prisons, I mean, Eastern's a very old facility. Yes, it was. And I'm sure the land around it is still part of the prison. And so if they have the land, Guess what they, they built on the farm? farm. Get, you know what Parking. They, no. <laughs> they built uh, 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 
that hub, the the first uh, prison when you go upstate is it's a, it's a uh, it's a it's a, a medium prison uh-huh. or a minimum prison. Yeah. Right next door, they built it right next door to it. I uh, forget the name of it. It's it's a, it's a, right. They got rid of the farm to build more prison. Right. right? That's the right. Pataki. Yeah. Seems seems to be the way it's going. Well, um, there's a lot more uh, there's a lot more to this topic, um, but we're we're pretty much out of time. I don't know, uh, Guillermo or Alicia, if you have any other anything you want to you want to add to this, you can read uh, Alicia's writing at uh, MarshallProject.org. Is that yeah, the marshallproject.org. Um, and uh, thank you both um, for, for coming on Feast Years. Guillermo, do you have anything you want to add, wrap up with? Oh, well, no, just that uh, we do have opportunities, and I think that they want to give more opportunities to the inmates to prepare their own meals. Give the inmates more opportunities to prepare their own meals so they could eat a little more nutritionally. And those and inmates that are well-behaved. Right, exactly. It would pro- provide better, better behavior more than likely. Right? Yes, Thank you for listening today to Feast Your Ears. Uh, thank you to Kristen Baylor, my producer, for putting the show together, and Liz Smith for engineering the show every Wednesday. Uh, please take a moment to like the show on Facebook and iTunes, and follow me on Instagram. Thanks very much. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.